Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. Of the many objections people have to Christianity, one of the biggest is the doctrine of hell. If Jesus is a loving God, how can he send people to hell, where they will be tortured for eternity for choices they made in the span of a lifetime that was only around 70 years? In other words, how could a loving God send people to hell? If God truly loves everyone and wants none to perish, then why not just save everyone? Why does hell even exist? To answer these questions, we need to look at what the Bible says about the human soul and what hell is. These two things are intricately connected in scripture. The most vivid description of hell is given to us by Jesus in the parable called the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in the like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who want to pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The first thing to note about this passage is it says the rich man is in flames. However, there are other passages where hell is described not as a place of fire, but as a place of darkness. Theologians have noted for years the fire in hell is most likely metaphorical not a literal physical fire that an immaterial mind suffers in. When speaking of things beyond the natural realm, like the things in heaven, the Bible constantly relies on metaphors to do so. And theologians have noted the same logic ought to apply with hell, since the Bible uses metaphorical language to describe the suffering there. John Blanchard says, The fire of hell is not a material phenomenon that could, for example, drive a steam engine or generate electricity. 
Virtually every interpreter agrees that when Jesus spoke of hell's worm, he was using a metaphor. It would be strange if in the same breath he should speak of fire and not be doing the same thing. However, with that in mind, we need to also say, hellfire is metaphorical for something far worse. This parable is the only one that Jesus gives where one character has a proper name. But if Lazarus has a proper name, why doesn't the rich man? Theologians like Tim Keller have noted the contrast is deliberate. In the Second Temple period, status and wealth meant everything, especially for groups like the Sadducees and Pharisees. Status and wealth was how you demonstrated to the rest of the world you had God's favor, and was how you made a name for yourself. To the ancient world, the rich man had earned a name for himself, whereas Lazarus was just a beggar. Many believe beggars earn their place from their sin or their parents' sin, whereas if you were a good person, you would be favored with wealth and be rich like Abraham was. But Jesus reverses this on purpose to illustrate a point. In the afterlife, it is Lazarus who has a name, but the rich man is the one without a name. Why? Verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. In other words, you already had what defined you, what gave you your status. See, in ancient Judea, the rich man was most likely not a pagan or an agnostic atheist. The rich man would have gone to temple, believed in God, kept the Sabbath, but now it's clear that was not what really mattered for him because he already had his good things. Philosophers going back to Cicero have asked, what is the reason for living? What is the logos or summum bonum, the highest good for humanity to achieve? But most people choose their own summum bonum, their own highest good, that they feel personally defines them and gives them their reason to live. This rich man was defined by his good things. His identity was being a rich man. But now that he's in hell, the wealth and riches are gone. And now there's no him left. He was a rich man or nothing. Jesus, in his wisdom, points out sin is not just what we traditionally think it means, which is breaking God's law. If that is all sin is, the rich man would likely be in heaven with Lazarus. Remember, this passage, in its larger context, is presented to the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, but also prided themselves on how well they followed God's law. The message of the gospel is there's something deeper going on with what sin is. Soren Kierkegaard, in his book The Sickness Unto Death, spends several pages trying to wrap his brain around what sin is. See, he struggles with the traditional definition of sin, which is breaking God's law. But Kierkegaard wonders if that can be a sufficient definition, because there is the Pharisee, who in despair manages to attain a certain legal righteousness. In other words, the Pharisee, or legalist, rigorously follows the law, yet is lost. Why? Because sin is not just breaking God's law. Sin is building your identity on anything else besides God. Or as Kierkegaard says, sin is the opposite of willing to be itself grounded transparently in God. See, when the Pharisees tried to earn their salvation through their own moral performance, 
when they try to rigorously follow the law, not because they love God, but because they're working so hard, God has to bless them, and he has to give them his favor, and he has to take them to heaven. When they did this, they were not actually building their identity on God, but on their moral performance. They are getting their identity and self-fulfillment out of their own moral worth, not the love of God. And Jesus says it's destroying them from the inside out. It's filling them with pride and greed and hatred of others. And that is because sin is deeper than just breaking God's law. Sin is building your identity on anything but God and letting that define you. Whether you are a rich man or a vlogger or a Pharisee who has built their identity on their moral performance, then even though you may believe in God and you may pray to God, you're not actually following God, but using God as a means to an end, which is whatever you've established as your ultimate identity. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because sin is not just breaking God's law. Sin is loving something more than God and building your identity on it. In other words, if you take a good thing and make it your ultimate thing instead of God, if you take your moral performance, popularity, pride, money, power, your looks, your career, your kids, a spouse, a parent's approval, and make that more important than the love and approval of God, then Although you may believe in God, your ultimate identity is not grounded in God, but in something else. What you really worship isn't God, but an identity, that which you really rely on for meaning. And that, within your soul, starts a spiritual fire that will eventually consume you. This is why the spiritual afterlife of hell is described as a fire. Now many might scoff at this, saying, There's no fire in me. I can have meaning without God that will not consume me. And yes, we've all said that. See, Jesus was very wise on this when he noted how good we are at spotting other people's problems while ignoring our own. Get the log out of your eye before you get the speck out of someone else's eye. See, we are very good at seeing the minute problems in someone else but not the big problems in ourself. For example, we can easily spot addiction in our loved ones much quicker than they ever could. It's not hard for us to notice that their life begins to revolve around the next time they will get high. Their entire life becomes built on getting this one substance. Over time, they need more and more of the substance to get less of the high, and so it slowly disintegrates them. As this progresses more and more, we see isolation and blame shifting. It's all about how they are just a consequence of their surroundings. They didn't really want this, but here they are now and it's not really their fault. There's always denial going on. Denial of what needs to be done, denial of what the real problem is, and worst of all, denial that they can get out of it. I can't tell you how many people I've known who become addicted to a drug and would tell me, you should never really end up like me. And I wish I could stop, but I can't. And it's not really my fault. My father got me addicted, or my friends tricked me into it, or whatever the blame shifting is. 
But it's not just substance addiction we see this in. Everyone, Christian or non-Christian, looks for meaning in something to shape their identity and slowly gets addicted to it, to the point where if you take it away, they couldn't live without it. Whether it's your career, your reputation, power, money, kids, a spouse, everyone has something which they need to give them meaning. We cannot live and not have something that drives us or gives us satisfaction. And even though you may not see it in yourself yet, that doesn't mean it's not there and not defining you. We as humans very much seek to find our purpose in life. And if Christianity is true and we are made for a specific purpose, then if we pick something else other than our inherent divine purpose, it will slowly disintegrate us instead of truly fulfilling us as we hope and desire. And also, if Christianity is true, then that fire in your soul simply just doesn't go away at death, but keeps living on. And that is what hell is. That is the fire that burns in hell. It is a fire of your own creation, from your own self-worth and righteousness. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must either be true or false. Now there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, and you yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You can repent of it and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever, like a machine. So it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will of itself be hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. Watch a log in the fireplace. It slowly falls apart. As Tim Keller says, it's one thing to love a career and get satisfaction from it, But if you build your entire identity on that career and you lose it, your worth is gone. It becomes a living hell. It's one thing to love someone and want to be loved. But if you build your entire identity on that person and they fail you, your worth is gone. You've lost your reason for living. It becomes a living hell. And that's all that hell is. Peter Kreft and Ronald Tassili put it like this. Hell begins in this life in the same sense that heaven does. Its seed is planted here. The blessed will say they've always been in heaven, and the damned will say they've always been in hell. Because hell is the rejection of God in favor of setting something else that defines you. And if we build our identity in something that is imperfect and not made to last, then neither will we. As it fails and dies, so will your soul. And God's love and his true identity for you will only torment you. The Orthodox Church says it like this, According to the saints, the fire that will consume sinners at the coming of the kingdom of God is the same fire that will shine with splendor in the saints 
It is the fire of God's love, the fire of God himself, who is love. For our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29, who dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16. For those who love God and who love all creation in him, the consuming fire of God will be radiant bliss and unspeakable delight. For those who do not love God and who do not love at all, this same consuming fire will be the cause of their weeping and their gnashing of teeth. This is why Jesus warns, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who destroys both the soul and body in hell. The Bible says God is love, and the only way the love of God can destroy your soul is if you reject it in favor of worshiping something else. God destroys those in hell, not by torment, but by trying to get them to realize they are tormenting themselves, pushing further and further away from God, trying to find purpose and meaning in something else. Crefton Tassili put it like this, A small child in a fit of rage, sulking and hating his parents, may feel their hugs and kisses at that moment as torture. By the same psychological principle, the massive beauty of an opera may be torture to someone blindly jealous of its composer. So the fires of hell may be made of the very love of God, or rather, by the damned's hatred of that love. The thing the damned wish for, happiness on their own selfish terms, is impossible, even for God to give. It does not exist. It cannot exist. C.S. Lewis paints the differences between souls in hell and souls in heaven through conversations between them in his book, The Great Divorce. Saints in heaven try to convince those in hell to come up with them. But even though the souls from hell are miserable, they prefer their misery to being with God, despite being welcome to come to heaven. Reginald? Reginald, is that you? Why is it you? Hello, Pam. Where's Michael? Do you have Michael with you? No, it's, it's just me. He, he's up there, far up in the mountains. What's going on, Reginald? Why didn't Michael come to see me? Well, well things don't work that way here, Pam. It's different from where you came from. Uh, Michael wouldn't even be able to see you. You're invisible to him. And it's like you're a ghost. He'd stare right through you. Why can you see me then? Well, I've been trained for this sort of work. <gasps> work? Work, Reggie? Is that what I am to you? Pam, please. Look, Reginald, I want to see my son. Oh, it's not like we're hiding him from you, Pam. It's just that you're not solid enough yet. Okay, that's ridiculous. He's my son. Of course he could see me. Well, things are different here, Pam. I, I mean, in heaven, they don't work that way. I, th there's no darkness here. When you eat the food here, you'll fill up. You can have your son here. All right, well then, then tell me what it is I need to do. Tell me what I do so that I can go see Michael. Well, uh, the first step is the hardest, but, but then you'd be ready and then Michael would be able to see you. But you're gonna have to want someone other than Michael. It's gonna have to be a germ of desire for God to start this process. Of course, I knew it. Religion and all that, how, how dare you? How dare you bring religion into this, you of all people? Fine. Fine. 
tell me what it is. Show me how I can want God and well, then he'll let me see Michael, right? <laughs> You're seeing it all wrong. You can't use God as a means to see Michael. You're not going to be solid unless you want God for his sake and his sake alone. Oh. You wouldn't say that if you were a mother. You're seeing yourself as only a mother to Michael. I, I mean, you were God's first. He waited for you. He suffered. He loves you, Pam. Reggie, do you honestly believe that a God who loved me would keep me from seeing my son? Do you believe that a God who loved me would have taken my son in the first place? <laughs> he did that partly for Michael's sake. What is that supposed to mean? I loved Michael. I gave everything I had to make Michael happy. I gave up my life. Uh, human beings can't keep each other happy for very long. It's just impossible. Uh, your, your love for Michael was, it was too fierce, it was uncontrolled, monomaniacal. Uh, it overtook who you were. God had to take away that object of love so that out of the loneliness, maybe something beautiful could emerge. Reginald, you are cruel and evil. How dare you criticize my love for my son? My son. M maternal love is the highest and the purest form of feeling in human nature. Oh, don't fool yourself about emotions and feelings, Pam. <sighs> uh, feelings are never high or low. It's only when God gets a hold of it that he can make it holy. It's always bad when feelings become a false god. Mm -mm -mm. My feelings for Michael would have never been bad. Oh, I see. And from where you came from, Hell, did they have their sons? Are they happy? They didn't love their sons like I love my Michael. I lived for his memory until I died. You shouldn't have done that, Pam. You worshiped that pain like an idol. You made it horrible. You wouldn't even leave the house. Your husband and daughter were miserable. It's not like they weren't grieving as well. But, oh no, it's all pain and suffering. Not even any good memories about Michael. Yeah, yeah, Just, I know. Uh, your pain and suffering. Yes, of course, now. It's all about me. It's all my fault. Everything I do is wrong, according to you. Oh, exactly. I mean, we're all wrong. That's, that's what we find out when we get here. It's all a big joke. There's no sense in even trying to prove you're right anymore. Once you admit you're wrong, then you can start living. Reginald, this, this, is a cruel and twisted joke. I don't care about the rules here. I don't care about a God that would keep a son from his mother. Nobody has the right to do that. Not even your God. He is my son, mine. Yours? Yes, mine. You didn't make it. Excuse me? Have you forgotten you didn't even want to have a baby? Who told you that? That's a lie. Besides, it's none of your business. I hate this place. I hate your religion. I hate your God. I despise your God. I believe in a God of love. Yet you don't even have enough love in your heart to forgive even your brother or your husband or your daughter. Oh, of course. Now it's all about you. Don't worry yourself and about I it, Pam. <laughs> you can't hurt me. You can't hurt anyone here. 
Bye, Pam. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does anyone ever ask to get out of hell. In the book of Revelation, when judgment is being poured out over sinners, they are not repenting and asking for forgiveness. Instead, they are cursing God. They may not want to be in that fire of their addiction, but they hate God enough to prefer the fire instead of being with Him. Prominent atheists today remark they would rather spend an eternity in hell than acknowledge God as their Lord. But I do reject Jesus Christ. He is not my Lord. If he did exist, I would tell him to his face that if he created a hell, then he should go to hell. He's an immoral person by my standards of, of trying to avoid harm. Even the rich man in this parable never asked to get out of hell. He only tries to get Lazarus into hell. And notice how out of touch the rich man's addiction has made him he still thinks Lazarus is supposed to serve him, as on earth he was above him in status and wealth. Daryl Bach says, The use of Lazarus' name in his appeal suggests that the rich man knew about Lazarus all along, making his neglect of the poor man that much worse. Perhaps even now he sees Lazarus as a servant. And he is so out of touch there is a strong implication of blame-shifting he is only there because he didn't get the right information, and someone needs to go back and warn his brothers so they would not have to suffer like he is. Commentators have noted for years this is an insinuation that God didn't give him enough warning that his greed and behavior was leading him to hell. So someone better let his brothers know this information so they don't end up like him. Total blame shifting. Daryl Bach says, The rich man has gone from self-indulgence to anguish. Luke here uses a different term for suffering than that used in 1623. This word refers to continual pain and grief, especially mental pain. He became consumed with his own joy, leisure, and celebration and failed to respond to the suffering and needs of others around him. The pain in hell is mental anguish. Notice how well the rich man is able to carry on a conversation. People literally on fire in this world would never be able to do that. Clay Jones says, Notice that Jesus didn't depict the rich man as screaming hysterically in anguish and so pained by the flames that he was incoherent. Jesus could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, we read of a man who, rather than screaming hysterically, is able to make requests, carry on a conversation, lodge arguments, and form rebuttals. His situation seems more like the mental anguish of an addiction rather than one of a literal fire. And because of that, there is no reason for him to ask to get out of hell, because then he wouldn't have the status of wealth and superiority he had on earth over other people like Lazarus. Going to the other side means to give up what he built his identity on, become an equal to Lazarus the beggar, and lose everything that gave him his name and identity. Dallas Willard says, I am thoroughly convinced God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. 
This is why C.S. Lewis says the doors of hell are locked from the inside. It is not that Christ cannot save those souls in hell. It is that they do not want to get out of hell. The more they remain there, the less likely they will ever change, disintegrating and disintegrating, refusing to admit what it is until every last resemblance of them is gone, lost in their eternal hatred for the one that already saved them from such torment. C.S. Lewis says, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them? They will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? That's what hell is. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. There is no one in hell who doesn't prefer to be there. That is why the idea you might have of hell being filled with souls of people who have never heard of Christianity is not true. Jesus said so much in John 9.41 and John 15.22. No one is sentenced to hell for limited information. But lacking knowledge of the gospel is also not a free ticket to heaven. Everyone has to decide if they want the spiritual fires in them put out or if they prefer their own mental torments. And so, that is why we spread the gospel, so people who have never heard of Christ can get better information in hopes they will make the right decision. Keeping the gospel from people doesn't send them to heaven, but it doesn't send them to hell either. We all have to make that decision if we want to be with God or if we want to be God. And the gospel is the best way for people to see they need the fires in themselves put out. How so, you might ask? Look at how this passage ends. The rich man's request is to try to scare his brothers into correction, sending someone back to warn them. Abraham replies, that will never work. Fear of hell doesn't get you to avoid it. In many cases, it can only make your circumstances worse because fear of hell will never change your heart. Building your identity on something else besides God is an effect of self-centeredness. It's putting your desires above all else. And when you scare people into being good because of fear of a literal fire in hell, it doesn't change their hearts. It is just more self-centeredness. Why are people being good? Is it because they love God for what he has done for them? No, they are being good for their own sake. It creates a pharisaic mindset where you try to earn your way out of hell by being good. It's moral selfishness. It's an identity built on self-service. And in trying to avoid the fire of hell, they create their own moralistic hellfire in themselves, where all they care about is getting things that will keep them safe, happy, and fulfilled. I once had a friend from my days in the military, and he blocked me on Facebook over some disputes. And one of the things we were disputing was the afterlife, because he wrote a post where he said he knew when he got to heaven, God was going to reward him for only reading the King James Version and punish those in hell that disagreed with him. And I told him 
If you think that when you get to heaven, the focus will be on you and your own glory, you will never make it. You'll be consumed by your own pride in your attempt to climb there. Good works out of pride or fear of hell will never save you. They will only carry you to hell. What will change people? Love. Unconditional, sacrificial love that shows us the fires in our heart and absorbs them in a sea of love and forgiveness. There is only one place to find such love, at the cross. That is why this parable ends as it does. The rich man wants a miracle to shock his brothers into submission by fear alone. But Abraham says miracles, forcing people to believe, will not save people from hell. The key is not knowing that Jesus is God or that there is a hell. Even the demons know that. The key is you have to know why Jesus died. And where you learn about that is by reading Moses and the prophets. We have to know what Jesus did to save us on the cross. And in reading the prophets, we can see it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All like sheep we have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You will not know how much Jesus loves you until you realize how much he had to suffer to redeem you. You have to recognize the fire, the depravity in your own heart and realize no amount of self-righteousness or moral effort will ever save you from the fire in your soul. Someone has got to do it for you. No one talked more about hell than Jesus did, because on the cross, he took it. The real pain of the cross was not being physically broken, but feeling the utter emptiness of hell. On the cross, all the sins of the world were placed on him. All the despair, guilt, shame, and agony. Jesus felt the full weight of the hell that our sin has caused, more so than we would suffer in an eternity of hell. Unless you know what Jesus did for you, unless you recognize the disintegrating fires in you and see the radical love that was necessary to redeem you, you won't be changed. You won't be transformed by the renewing of your heart. Your focus will never be on a truly loving relationship with God, but on yourself in one way or another. Who are you really? Do you have a foundation that can see you through anything? Or are you just a boyfriend? Or are you just a girlfriend? Are you just a vlogger? Or just a businessman? Do you really want to know who you truly are? Or are you just looking for the next high? Do you have what it takes to extinguish the fire in your soul? Do you have a God who loves you so much he took the full weight of your sin and agony on himself? There is only one who can save us from ourselves and thus save us from hell. And he is revealed in Moses and the prophets. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. 
and a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the Ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.